Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, uh, my 50th, we'll discuss the prevailing uh, method by which physician reimbursement is calculated via the Resource-Based Relative Value Scale, or RBRVS. With me to discuss the topic is the Brookings Institution's Dr. Kavita Patel. Welcome, Kavita. Thank you, David. It's good to be here. Thank you again. Let's begin with some context. Beginning in 1992, Medicare and soon after private payers adopted the Harvard-developed RBRVS as a method of determining how physicians should be paid by procedure. These prices are determined by a formula that uses three factors, physician work, 54%, practice expense, 41%, and malpractice expense, 5%. This work is done by an organization called the RUC, thus the title of this podcast program, the RUC, or the Relative Value Update Committee, is managed by the American Medical Association and is made up of 29 members from major medical specialties and the AMA. The RUC meets three times annually to set prices for new procedure codes and to reevaluate existing codes. Over the past few years, the RUC has come under increasing criticism in part since RUC meetings are close to the public, since the work directly profits the AMA, because the RBRVS episodic payment system perversely incents the use or overuse of specialty services by pricing them higher than patient evaluation and management services without consideration of patient outcomes, and because CMS nearly always adopts the RUC's recommendations without critical evaluation. In sum, this example of regulatory capture substantially explains, in part, the shortage of primary care physicians since their work is less procedurally intensive that is, primary care physician income is substantially less than specialty physician income. Again, with me to discuss the topic and what can be done to improve the method by which we price procedures is Dr. Kavita Patel. Dr. Patel's bio is, of course, noted on the website. And lastly, listeners will recall Kavita discussed ACOs, or Affordable Care Organizations, a year ago this past February. So with that too long, likely, introduction, uh, let me begin, Kavita, by asking you, Two clarifying questions. Exactly how does the RUC determine physician work, or the basis by which they, moreover, price a procedure? So the RUC does, it's actually a multi-step process. One, they do a survey of physicians to actually assess kind of what the level of physician work is, and it's a random sample of not just AMA members, kind of, but something what they call the AMA master file. So at least you're getting a kind of a national sample of physicians of all kinds of specialties, members, non-members, what have you. And then they also look at vignettes. So surveys help to then lead into kind of the quantitative aspect of how time is spent. Remember, the RBRVS and some of Shao's original work really looked at the focus of time and intensity of services. And so while we often like to criticize that now because it's not appropriate, when the RUC really was looking at what they were tasked to do, which is the value of what a doctor does in their day-to-day services, they had to go out to physicians. Then they also had to look at kind of clinical vignettes of that work and use those vignettes combined with the surveys to come up with the value for those services. And, and I'll use kind of a rough example. It's why we know that a cataract removal, despite that, that procedure only taking, you know, as short as 10 to 20 minutes, can be reimbursed at approximately 10 to 12 times 
counseling for obesity, which takes an hour, but doesn't have the intensity of services used. So that's really the rock in a nutshell. Okay, thank you. Also, it's estimated CMS approves approximately 90% of the RUCS recommendations. Assuming this is true, what explains, and this is one of the criticisms, what, what explains the CMS's lack of evaluation? So it's interesting, the um, notion, David, of what CMS adopts and what they don't adopt. I think there was a time where it was actually you know, pretty close to 100%. If the, if the RUC deliberated and made recommendations, CMS took all those recommendations. Interestingly enough, uh, when I had a verbal conversation with very senior officials at CMS, they informed me that in this past year, it's been far less than 90%, and they said that you know they were looking at approximately 70 to 80%, which is still the majority, but it shows you that, one, we're having more and more uh, kind of scrutiny of what the recommendations are, and two, I think a broader thing, which is something we hopefully will get into, is that people are trying to say, that the RBRVS time and intensity way of reimbursing is just not consistent with the way we talk about value and the triple aim. And so CMS, in what they've done in kind of their own actions by taking less of the recommendations than in time before, as well as this shift to more scrutiny of the RUC, is signaling, I think, the bigger aspect of payment reform changes for all payers. Okay, fair enough. As I noted, uh, there can be substantial price skewing, and since we're mentioning ophthalmologists and cataracts, uh, ophthalmologists performing cataract procedures can earn or do earn 10 times the hourly rate right. suggested of primary care. So the question becomes, and this is one of the criticisms, to what extent de facto then do physicians, as is termed, practice to the codes? I think that, you know, I, I'll speak now in my clinical practice hat since I, I still see patients. I think we're giving physicians a lot of credit if we think they're practicing to the codes and that they're so mercurial and entrepreneurial about this. What I will tell you is that what most physicians have done is practiced to what they've seen modeled in their own training environment. So I grew up and was trained kind of watching, you know, specialists get paid four to five times what I in a primary care setting would get paid. And we start to imprint that on what our earning ability is, as well as what we do in a primary care setting. So I don't, I think that, I'm sure there are these egregious examples of physicians practicing to the code. I think what you're seeing is that physicians are behaving after what they see modeled. And if you are in, whether it's, opt I don't want to just pick on the ophthalmologist, mm -hmm. but in any practice setting, if you know that you can master a procedure really well, and you'll also be compensated because that's how reimbursement guidelines have been dictated for a long time. You're going to do that procedure. It's just not very, I don't think it's that Machiavellian. But on the other hand, if you're a primary care physician wanting to bump up your salary, do you know what my colleagues are doing? They're learning how to do skin biopsies, David. They're actually trying, so they're not necessarily practicing to the codes, but they're watching the behavior and they're learning that they can make a lot of money going and doing joint injections and procedures. Are some of those unnecessary? Probably, because we do a lot of unnecessary mm -hmm. things. But they just see what's being reimbursed and kind of valued around them. Okay, so then my obvious next question then is, how problematic is this? I mentioned, compared, as we discussed already, comparatively lower pricing on primary care has led to 
the shortage of primary care docs and relative to problematic that leads of course to access problems, shorter patient visits mm -hmm. and the compromises PCPs or primary care physicians have in moderating the influence over specialty care. So on the harm or problematic uh, right. aspect, how does this skew just basic physician practice? Yeah, I think the most interesting kind of cultural divide now is between primary care and specialists. You're seeing a lot of uh, attention on the ACO front with primary care, and you're seeing specialists say, well, I want to be in an ACO, and I want this. And then the primary care docs, like myself, are saying, hey, listen, you know, if you're willing to give us some of the money that you're making, you know, in your specialty, we'd be happy to have you in our ACO. So I think that what's harmful is that until we're in a time of transition, and but yet the predominant payer and the predominant model is still fee-for-service. Until we get past a threshold, then it's still, we're still in a pretty vulnerable period. Okay, okay. So there has been, as you noted, per your comment about CMS looking more carefully at the RUC recommendations, there have been in the past five years particularly, has been increasing criticism of the RUC. For example, in March 2012, four former CMS administrators gave testimony before the Senate Finance Committee, uh, they agreed that establishing the rock in retrospect now is a mistake and that it needs to be replaced. And that's obviously pretty uh, damning uh, criticism. So to what effect has this increasing attention on the adequacy or inadequacy of the rock had, meaning what presently is the appetite for substantive rock reform? I do think that uh, there's a lot of appetite for not just the, for one RUC reform, but then two, kind of what is RUC reform, and, and I have air quotes around that for people listening, what is RUC reform really leading us to? It's, it's really just this, again, overall payment reform. And I found it also very interesting that, you know, you had four CMS officials from different administrations and different parties kind of saying, yes, absolutely. But I think that's why you saw some of the language around the codes and the valuation of the codes in the SGR patch as well as a number of professional societies who have kind of said, we really believe that there should be more transparency on the rock as well as potentially looking at the process in a different way. And that may not be at the American Medical Association. I've personally uh, talked to folks at the AMA who have said, you know, we're, we're making significant progress on changing the rock, making it more transparent and more available to all specialties as well as to the public. But again, I think this goes back to like the, you know, the underpinning of what the rock was kind of told that they were supposed to be the uh, keepers of and how people have perceived what they've done with it. And I don't want Medicare to come off of this without any fault. CMS has a pretty huge role that they could have played a long time ago in taking these recommendations or not. So I would hope that a bigger message out of this from the four past CMS officials is for the present CMS leadership to say, you have the ability to do something different, now go do it. And then with the SGR patch, we actually now have a congressional mandate to do it. So it, all signs shouldn't be pointing towards AMA, you fix the problem. Actually, it should go back to the keepers of our tax dollars, you and me, David, of Medicare. What are you valuing and why are you paying money for things when even we've agreed that they are not representative of what beneficiaries need? So let's go to this, the AMA specifically. Um, so their counter argument is this is all codified in law. 
They right. own the data that's provided that's in legal right. provision. That's they make seventy million dollars because that's what the law states. They say too that the physicians who participate do so free, no, free, right. no salary. Right. right. Um, they do make the argument they're transparent. I don't. I can't see that. But the other argument they make, mm -hmm. which is accurate in pre-earlier comment, that they are starting to. This is all budget neutral. So if they raise procedure uh, reimbursement for A, they have to lower it for B through somewhere Correct. between B through right. Z. Right. Right. Um, and they say, too, that in the past few years they've attempted to rebalance payments between specialists and primary care. Uh, so to their credit, that seems to be right. uh, moving in the right direction. Are there other defenses that the AMA makes that you think are salient or credible? Well, I mean, I think uh, everything you just said is kind of a lot of the, like, statutory, regulatory you know, these are things that uh, to undo, we would need literally an act of Congress or something to that a, a level of effort. I think a bigger defense is who really should, who is kind of the spokesman or spokeswoman for the profession of medicine? I mean, the American Medical Association was kind of the default organization for all of professional physicians. It's been fascinating, David. There's, you know, many... That's less the case, it's certainly, less the now, case now. than it was in and, and, and I think what will be really interesting for your listeners, the SGR patch went through, but remember we had an SGR fix that was on the table with these alternative payment models. Right. If you look at that language, professional societies, many of them, are kind of the ones that are you know, kind of primed and positioned to help doctors through these alternative payment models. And so it won't be the AMA all by itself anymore. It'll be all these societies. So I, I would say in defense of what the AMA has done, I think that what they've tried to do is represent the House of Medicine. And it's hard because now the House of Medicine is as complex as the healthcare system. So I do think that this next wave of reforms is going to open the opportunity for organizations like the thoracic surgeons, the American College of Physicians, the family practice organizations, the pediatrics organizations, every specialty that might not even just deal with Medicare is going to really have a role in helping guide doctors through a new model of care. And so the bigger question is going to be, you know, in light of the ruck and some of the criticism, but also the fact that they have an institutional memory, how do they move forward and evolve? What is the next phase of the ruck? And how do other professional societies kind of have a more meaningful role in that? One way to get there, and let me as a follow-up question ask you, what can we learn comparatively? I mean, what right. other sort of options are there right. that may be categorically different or just moderately different? So other countries have used, you know, there's been a long time of criticism that the government itself, our United States government itself, doesn't have its own version of kind of a, a ruck, you know, an independent body that doesn't have conflict. Because the argument has been, obviously, that the AMA has... Self-serving. Self-serving, right. And, and that's the obvious prima facie kind of argument, right? So, so there has been other models in other countries that have been whole government, you know, councils that are all government kind of people, employees, et cetera. There have been some private public models of, of uh, assessing value in healthcare. I think the most interesting thing that kind of nobody talks about anymore is the IPEB, right? Remember, we were going to have this 
Independent payment advisory board. So we haven't had to trigger the IPAB because our Medicare spending has really been contained. But imagine a world, David, where we go back to pre-Affordable Care Act spending levels, we trigger an IPAB, and then all of a sudden we've got Senate-appointed, you know, presidential-nominated, Senate-appointed individuals Mm -hmm. who create kind of in their own way, almost a rock-like entity that makes huge recommendations and changes to the Medicare program. I think that could be a really interesting development. I personally think there were some changes we could have made to the IPAB, you know, in the Affordable Care Act that might have made it a better entity, but that's one example of the kind of things that I think people want to see more of. Well, you're right. The IPAB, because of cost growth has been contained, has not been put into a They've not been formed, they're not meeting, but of course that was one of the more contentious provisions because um, the critics would say this is um, um, by fiat or allowing people to set prices for national programs. Right. Okay. Right. Um, You did mention the doc fix. Yeah. So we did pass in late March, again, a patch. Yeah. It's not a complete fix, which would mean we'd have to find the $140 billion dollars to completely uh, right. fix, quote-unquote, the docs. We do the one-year patch. That's right. There is a provision in that past legislation that authorizes the secretary to collect and use certain information for physician services and determination of relative values and the formula for setting physician fees. So that language very much sounds like the secretary go off and see what you can do right. to improve the RUC process. Yeah, and, and there's that language further on if you go and look, it, it really leads to kind of the misvalue of codes. You, you see, you know, to be a little more granular about it, um, it authorizes and instructs, you know, the secretary and therefore CMS to really look at all the codes and their current values and whether or not that's misvalued and what does that mean, um, you know, to be determined. So I think that you're exactly right, David. As I mentioned, there was a lot of pressure for increased transparency. A number of professional societies made that recommendation to, and CMS administrators made that recommendation to Congress. I think what you're seeing in the SGR patch language is even a more kind of a push to say to, to CMS and HHS, now you need to go do this. It'll be really interesting to see what CMS does next, because as I mentioned, I had heard from senior officials, they've been taking less of the RUCS recommendations over the last several years. Now with this mandate to look at the codes more closely, will they set up their own, they already had people working on this issue, will they go forward and continue to add experience and personnel internally at CMS and therefore kind of honestly make it less necessary to depend on the RUCS recommendations. And that's been the question that I think a lot of us who watch it on the outside have been wondering is, will CMS build internal capacity to do some of this work on their own? And I think you're seeing that in the patch. So two final questions. As a physician, between and amongst your colleagues, leaving aside primary care's subjective view that they should receive, the estimate is during a career, a primary care doc can earn as the difference in it can be between three and ten million dollars. Oh so yeah, it's substantial. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. So amongst primary cares who would likely favor this, what's your general assessment of the physician community as it relates to major RUC reform? So one, I would say overall, the physician community is skeptical of anything that is. And it's is, not monolithic, uh, it has, right? It's, yeah. it's they're there's they're not monolithic, but they're skeptical of anything that looks like it's more regulation. I think the concern 
a lot of my physician colleagues don't even realize that the RUC is, you know, they, they couldn't put a label on the entity that comes up with these codes and the, va or the value for these codes. Uh, but they all know that there is such a thing, that there's somebody doing this. I think they're nervous that the, a lot of physicians are actually comforted by the fact that it's a physician organization who's been doing it, and they're nervous about what would happen if the government had more involvement. Mm -hmm. However, I think there is, like, like I said, there is kind of this divide between primary care and specialties where primary care doctors see it as a great opportunity, and specialists are nervous about what this means. What's reassuring to me though, David, is that you're seeing private payers, not quickly, but you're seeing private payers like the Blue Cross Blue Shield in Massachusetts with the alternative quality contract. Mm. You know, they're basically using the fee-for-service system and saying, we know this system is flawed, yet it's still here, and we're trying to change your contracts to get you to, to think a little bit differently about value. So doctors in certain pockets of the country are kind of catching on to this and are trying to be a little bit more understanding and educated about how this could change what they're doing. I've talked to cardiologists who have said, all right, if we're going to start to get paid differently to be accountable, what do I need to do to, to keep my income where it is? And when I start to say, well, what if it means that you'll make 10% less? And then they look at me and they say, oh, no, 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 that's not acceptable. So we get back to the zero sum issue that you brought up. Somebody has to make less money in this equation. And who is that? And so I, I think that's going to be kind of the next set of the questions. Ba the battleground. It and will my, be. And my yeah. last question, if it, was, if it was solely up to you, what do you think is, um, now granted there's no perfect solution here, right? but what would you think is the best approach? So I think the best approach is to actually get the specialists and primary care docs to have incentives together in, in share. I mean, so one, one thing that's really clear to me is that if you go with the IOM figure that 30% of what we do is waste, you know what, there's money in there so that we can keep high-performing physicians viable. But that means that we've got a set of low, honestly, there's a bell curve to this. That means that we've got some people on the lower end of the bell curve who quite honestly shouldn't be making what they're making. And it's not just money. Because there's no value. And it's not just money, it's also what that, what that translates to patient care. So I would be in favor of actually finding, you know what, you and I would want to pay doctors who actually deliver high value care. I hope I'm one of them, but the truth is I don't even know. But you would want to make sure that doctors like us can find a way to stay financially viable as well as potentially if you are doing really well, you might actually make more money, David. That's the, nobody talks about this, but if there's 30% of our system that's wasted, 10% of that waste could go into salaries or you know, you know, actual income for physicians who are doing high quality work, and you could get paid more. But that does mean that there's somebody there who's not gonna get paid. And that's, uh, in my mind, that's kind of the bottom line. And I've warned doctors, I said, you better start to brace for your information being more public, like Medicare is going to do. And I think that as we get more and more transparent over my lifetime, we're going to have a very different way of practicing. Great. And Kavita, we're sorry at our time boundary. Yes. So it's great. Thank you for the whirlwind tour of the Thanks, RV Thank you very much. Thank you again.